The Mysteries of Watergate, Deep Throat and the Garage Meetings. I want to talk to you tonight from my heart on a subject of deep concern to every American. Those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. I've been charged with involvement in a full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon. What has come to be known as the Watergate Affair. I'm John O'Connor, author of Postgate, How the Washington Post Betrayed Deep Throat, Covered Up Watergate, and Began Today's Partisan Advocacy Journalism. In this series, we have covered the mysteries of Watergate, but not anything yet about the legendary Deep Throat Woodward Garage meetings beyond the last such meeting. A frightened Deep Throat warned with quivering lip, everyone's life is in danger. But we have not gone into the early meetings, especially the first, the longest and most crucial. In that meeting, which lasted until 6 a.m., Deep Throat explained carefully and at great length for Woodward the overall White House spying and sabotage narrative of Watergate. The sensational story of October 10, 1972 was the most important Post article, radically changing public assessment of the scandal. As a result, Walter Cronkite, the revered anchor of CBS Evening News, began covering Watergate in earnest. Ted Kennedy, because of this article, formed the committee eventually headed by North Carolina Senator Sam Irvin, known as the Senate Watergate Committee. It was this committee that convened dramatic televised hearings that transfixed the nation. In short, the Deep Throat Bob Woodward Garage meeting of October 9, 1972 was the pivotal episode of Watergate. But because the meeting is well known, along with the Post article flowing from it and the resultant sensational hearings, we have not included this meeting in our list of the mysteries of Watergate. But if everything we say about Watergate's mysteries is correct, what does this momentous garage meeting mean? Wasn't it key to busting the Watergate cover-up? The short answer is that this meeting is truly of critical importance, but not for the reasons which history has postulated and books and movies have portrayed. The post-collaboration with Deep Throat is crucial to our understanding of Watergate because it helps explain how the mysteries of Watergate have so long gone unsolved and worse, unlamented in their lack of solution. In a sense, this well-known meeting, enshrined in history, is itself a mystery that must be deconstructed to fully understand Watergate. What was the genesis of this meeting? It did not occur until the scandal had been simmering for four months with but tepid public reaction. The public had been engaged in a type of collective head-scratching over this odd, puzzling burglary. If, in fact, this meeting caused, through the reporting following it, an explosion of interest in the scandal, why didn't Mark Felt, a.k.a. Deep Throat, meet with Woodward earlier? If the public had been uninterested for the four months previously, why wait? Up until this meeting, Deep Throat did give Woodward bits and pieces of information. For instance, he informed Woodward immediately following the arrest that a burglar had Hunt's White House phone number, whereupon Woodward confirmed Hunt's White House consultancy in an exciting article. Soon, Deep Throat also leaked to Woodward that Hunt's safe contained a loaded handgun, also causing a minor sensation. But by and large, Deep Throat's help to Woodward consisted of these tidbits, as opposed to the sweeping narrative that Deep Throat later gave in October, approximately four months after the burglary, in a session lasting seven hours. Why in October this substantial difference in approach and in the assistance that Deep Throat was giving to Woodward? Let's first focus what Mark Felt's motives were as he became Deep Throat. 
To answer that, let's first examine the effect of these two early scandal bits that he provided Woodward, specifically Hunt's White House consultancy and his loaded handgun found in the White House safe. First, these bits helped his friend Bob stay on the story. Woodward originally had the assignment because he was on the low-level local crime beat. Normally, given that the story soon was shown to have national implications, the national reporters would get the story and Woodward would have been taken off the assignment. But these titillating scoops from a secret source kept Woodward on the case, assisted by Carl Bernstein, a superior copywriter. These leaks would also benefit the FBI. With a clear White House connection now publicized, the White House had the basis for the all-out investigation which felt wanted. By September 15, 1972, the FBI, using over 200 agents, conducted over 1,500 interviews. In short, the post-reporting gave Felt the exhaustive probe he wanted. There was mutual benefit in the relationship. Why, we should ask, did Felt care so much about doing such a thorough job? Professional pride is one easy answer. Self-satisfaction in his work. But there is more. In his first post-arrest meeting with FBI Director Patrick Gray, Felt fervently proclaimed to the director, the reputation of the FBI is at stake. Felt understood that the Bureau's reputation for integrity was its greatest strength. Because the citizens trusted the FBI, as one agent who worked with Felt told me, half of our work was already done before we got out of the car to do the interview. If, as a result of this early post-reporting, the FBI was allowed to conduct 1,500 interviews, what changed so much to make Felt become deep throat and go to the risky extreme of the garage meetings? The answer, which all should have seen but did not, had come on September 15, 1972, about 25 days before the garage meeting, when the Department of Justice announced the indictments of the seven original defendants, the five burgers and their two supervisors, Hunt and Liddy. The spokesman for the Department of Justice also offered, no more indictments are expected to be forthcoming. What no member of the public had been told at the time was that the grand jury had been limited to the burglary only. Put differently, no member of the public had been told that there may be crimes other than the burglary. Certainly, if the FBI developed solid evidence that a higher-up had authorized the burglary, that would be fair game to bring to the grand jury. The Justice Department has authority to convene and conduct grand juries, but in most cases, nothing keeps the FBI from investigating any federal crime and bringing it to any one of the many U.S. attorneys throughout the country. Any U.S. attorney can put, in normal situations, any case before the district's grand jury. However, there is a catch. If the case is one of election crime or public corruption because of fear of local politically influenced prosecutions, only the main justice in Washington, D.C. can authorize an investigation into these two categories of crimes. But ironically, this power gives main justice the ability to obstruct investigations throughout the country. In what I call the silent obstruction, main justice was refusing an investigation other than of the burglary, no matter what crime or potential crime was uncovered in the investigation. I call this the silent obstruction for two reasons. First, no member of the public knew about this restriction. Second, there was nothing illegal about restricting such investigations. But if publicly known, the public outcry would be loud if an investigation of a known crime were arbitrarily curtailed. 
But in Watergate, unlike the case of, say, publicized corruption, there would be no reason for the public to know of potential crimes other than the burglary. So for this reason, I call the obstruction silent. Mark felt knew about a variety of potential crimes which had come up in his investigation other than the burglary, and yet his FBI was not given permission to investigate. Why was this failure so important? Why did it matter that crimes other than the burglary were not being investigated? Because Felt knew that proof of these other crimes could possibly help prove higher authorization going to the White House for the burglary itself. Felt, as head of the Watergate investigation, had uncovered at least potential election crimes of spying and sabotage, which could be related to the Watergate burglaries. If there were other election crimes authorized by the Oval Office, by inference, they might show that the Nixon circle also had likely authorized the Watergate burglaries, which are somewhat similar to the other crimes. Felt's FBI had found that one Donald Segretti, a recent lieutenant in the Army, a lawyer, and a University of Southern California graduate, had been recruited by President Nixon's close aide, fellow USC graduate Dwight Chapin. He was paid by Nixon's private estate lawyer, Herbert Kalmbach. The FBI learned that Segretti had crisscrossed the country recruiting other young conservative lawyers, mainly for the purpose of pulling disruptive pranks on the opposition beginning with Nixon's primary opponents. These became known as Dirty Tricks or the Segretti Dirty Tricks. At USC, Dirty Tricks in campus political campaigns were traditional, indeed widely known as rat-fucking. Examples might be posting signs changing the time of a campaign rally or misplacing opponent shoes they had placed outside their hotel rooms for shoe shining, as was customary hotel service at the time. We hasten to add that the John F. Kennedy 1960 campaign featured a well-known trickster, Dick Tuck, who became a darling of the media. To give just one example, as Richard Nixon had begun speaking from the rear of a train on a whistle-stop campaign tour, and the train began slowly pulling away to Nixon's befuddlement. Apparently, Tuck had given a bit of cash to the train engineer to mistake the time of departure. This type of prank had been considered standard fare, and in a sense, fair play. To be sure, Segretti's program was perhaps an extreme and excessively efficient version of these tactics, taken, it could be argued, to a new extreme. Although Segretti was not supervised by Liddy and Hunt, the two sometimes looked in on Segretti, and ironically, in hindsight, to make certain Segretti did not prove to be an embarrassment to them. Because the Segretti operation seemingly had approvals and perhaps supervision at the Oval Office level, per Chapin and Kalmbach, Felt thought that the burglary might be part of a larger program of spying and sabotage, indeed leading to the Oval Office. In short, Felt hypothesized that investigating the Segretti operation might be a side door, so to speak, into finding higher-level approvals of the burglary program. Felt knew that Segretti's tricks were small potatoes, and they were not his ultimate target. He also knew that if the burglary investigation were to cease as of September 15, it would not look good for the FBI, and the Bureau indeed might be viewed as being party to a seeming whitewash of Watergate. He wanted his Bureau to consider investigating exhaustively. Felt always thought that one or two lower-level lieutenants in the White House were behind the burglaries. So by publicizing the Segretti Dirty Tricks as a potential template for the Watergate burglary, Felt, now becoming an engaged deep throat, thought the ensuing public pressure would force the White House to permit continuation of his investigation. That was Felt's main motive for these garage meetings. It was not to seek revenge on his boss, Patrick Gray, 
as many had thought it was not, harm Nixon. As Felt told me years later, I was not out to get Nixon. I was just trying to do my job. Before the indictments were announced on September 15, 1972, Felt had earlier sent several gracious, insightful memos up the chain of command through Gray to Maine Justice while seeking this broadened investigation. In the weeks following the indictments, he continued his campaign to seek authority over the Segretti dirty tricks, but he was continually rebuffed, so he needed the post to be his megaphone. But why did he need to risk the lengthy garage meetings with Woodward? The first meeting, the most significant one, tells us much about the true capabilities of modern journalism, at odds with the modern image of awesome capability of investigative journalism. Felt did not want simply to give Woodward FBI interviews. This would be unethical, would endanger any future prosecutions, and would, if discovered, point back to Felt and his FBI as the source. The latter, of course, would besmirch the FBI's reputation, Felt's major preoccupation. So he determined that he would teach the reporters to fish rather than give them fish. Posing as a volunteer source, Felt, I believe, and this is subject to some debate between me and Carl Bernstein, was the so-called government lawyer who called Bernstein in late September 1972 to give him the name of one of Segretti's attempted recruits, one Alex Shipley, an assistant state attorney general in Tennessee. Gretti had explained his operation to Shipley in detail as he recruited him, such that a post story about the dirty tricks would be sensational and would be verified directly out of Segretti's mouth to Shipley. Alas, the reporters did not understand the narrative, its connection to Watergate, which to Felt was obvious. Reporters and editors did not understand the concept and, to boot, were unsure about the accuracy. According to Barry Sussman, the reporter's editor, the Post was not going to publish the story, at least until Deep Throat met Woodward in the garage, after which they understood the story and were comfortable it was true. Put differently, had Deep Throat not met with Woodward in the garage on October 9, there never would have been the spying and sabotage story that was so crucial in exploding the Watergate cover-up. The October 10 story was indeed explosive, perhaps even more so than Felt would have predicted. Yes, the story, in fact, kept the investigation open in the face of public pressure, like as a factor in Patrick Gray's infamous implosion at his confirmation hearings beginning February 27, 1972. These confirmation hearings constituted an inflection point, which many observers view as being the first crack in the dam for the Nixon White House. Gray was so flustered that he promised to allow the questioning senators to rummage through all of his FBI investigatory files, a gaffe which immediately caused the loss of confidence in Gray by just about everyone, including, of course, the White House sponsoring him for his confirmation to be permanent director. As John Ehrlichman intoned famously to John Dean about Gray's performance, let him twist slowly, slowly in the wind. Let's look at other effects of the October 9. 1972 article. The story gave rise two days following it to the formation of what became the Senate Watergate Committee headed by North Carolina Senator Sam Irvin. What was crucial about that, with strong public pressure, Senate Republicans could not deny subpoena power to the committee, as Congress had done just weeks before in denying Representative Wright Patman's request for subpoena power for a congressional investigation but the article was most useful as a continued narrative framework. Used by the Post throughout its reporting, especially up to the time that McCord railed to Sirica 
in March of 1973 while Dean and Magruder were turning state's evidence. After that point, the spying and sabotage narrative was unnecessary. The president and the attorney general, among others, were in the crosshairs now and the spying and sabotage narrative. But up to that point, as dangers loomed of revelations about the CIA and escort referrals, the narrative was highly useful to the Post in selling its version of sole White House guilt. For instance, as Earl Silbert in January 1973 filed his pared-down witness list prior to trial, the Post indirectly upbraided him by repeating again and again that he had taken Segretti off the witness list. The Post used this observation to suggest that the prosecution was covering up for the true authors of the burglaries, which all knew were presumably White House and CRP executives. Post, likely knowing that it had wrongly named William Timmons of the White House and Glenn Seedham and Robert Odell of the CRP as recipients of wiretap summaries, nonetheless, without any sense of shame, ominously noted their absence from the witness list as well. All of this was to suggest a cover-up by the prosecution. Sirica, known to study the Post on his way to court on the bus, had the White House in mind as he upbraided the prosecution and witnesses for not revealing the higher-level movers of the pawns before him. Of course, Sirica never seemed to have a clue that Silbert, if allowed to try his case without restriction, would have pointed to Hunt and his aspirations for control of Mullen, a CIA cover company. This, of course, would have pointed to the CIA as being the source of authorization for the burglary, or at least part of the motive and intent behind it. So the post-coverage, combined with the appellate court's restrictions, Hunt's plea, and Silbert's necessary change in strategy, served to continue the implication of White House authorization as part of the spying and sabotage narrative so sensationally established in October of 1972. Felt, of course, had put forth the spying and sabotage theme as an investigative hypothesis, not as proven fact. But as time passed and evidence put forth in the Senate and later the cover-up trial, the Segretti program was all but forgotten. It had nothing, in short, to do with the burglary. As the investigation moved from September of 1972 to May 1973, it had become abundantly clear that there was a large component of CIA involvement in this operation. The irony, of course, is rich. The first garage meeting had turned Watergate into the country's most significant historical scandal. So we note, ironically, that it did so on what turned out to be an inapplicable hypothesis, ultimately not proven. The last in a series of garage meetings between Deep Throat and Woodward occurred in May 1973. This meeting that should have resulted in the public truly learning the essence of the scandal. What would have happened had Woodward and the Post done what they claimed to do, tell the truth without fear or favor? The public would have been informed about the facts affecting Nixon's continuation in office. The public would have learned about its main intelligence agency's roguish, illegal adventures, that is, of the CIA. It would have been told of swampish prostitution referrals by a major political party. Also significantly, Questions would have been asked as to who in the White House, if not high-level officials such as Nixon and Mitchell, approved this extremely silly venture. Lesson perhaps would have been learned about the inability of the White House to control a sprawling bureaucracy, starting with its own White House staff and, of course, extending to its intelligence agencies. We will later explore the post-reporting of Watergate, journalism that won a Pulitzer Prize and worldwide renown.
We will also talk about Deep Throat and the post-treatment of this iconic source, reported as revealed by him, and what it did not. We note in this regard that nothing at all was reported about the sensational garage meeting of May 1973, in which Deep Throat declared that everyone's life was in danger, that the CIA was involved in Watergate, and more importantly, wished to cover up other activities to which an investigation of Watergate and its role might lead. It suffices to say that history's most heralded, revered, and iconic source was not used to solve these mysteries, but rather to shroud them further. This was not Mark Felt's wish. As we leave our discussion of these mysteries and look forward to more fully discussing Watergate journalism, we should begin to ask about the use of anonymous sources. Yes, as many observers have noted, these sources may lie under shroud of anonymity, but it is also the case that the reporter can lie about what the anonymous source has said, or more likely, can conceal salient facts which the source revealed a form of fraud. A source wishing to remain anonymous cannot correct or supplement the record. I believe, based on the evidence, that this happened not only with Mark Felt, but with statements from Carl Schauffler, to name just one other, a witness with salient information. I believe that the suppression of truth as to these witnesses and as to many other facts known to the Post are extremely troubling. The question we raise as we conclude is not about Watergate itself, but about Watergate journalism. Why has it taken 49 years to clarify these mysteries? Thus concludes The Mysteries of Watergate. Thank you for listening. I have just completed a book on the same subject entitled The Mysteries of Watergate what really happened. While it covers the material in our podcast, I have added two chapters of contextual materials and removed the repetition needed for a podcast. For those enjoying this series, it will serve as a valuable historical reference. For your non-listening friends, it will prove enlightening and entertaining. Thank you for your support.